It's obviously not the first time that, that ethics of large companies has come under scrutiny, and, and we can go back 20 years and, and say there was sort of anti-corporate globalization movement going on, and you know a lot of that captured in, in Naomi Klein's famous book. And, and one aspect of that movement was clearly around something that you might call a values gap, um, that we'd seen the rise of very heavily brand-driven companies, uh, which identified themselves with certain ethics and certain values, you think of Nike and sweatshops as the, as the archetypal example, you know, in their, in their marketing, in their presentation to their, their consumers, uh, they would adopt one kind of face, you know, just do it, personal messages of personal empowerment, and in managing their supply chain, they would take a different approach, um, somewhat less about empowerment. And so there's obviously, there was a tension there, um, there's obviously a financial <coughs> tension between those two uh, that serves companies well to keep those two being somewhat different. Uh, and one of the things that we, we got out of that movement, if you like, was a whole series of the sort of ethical consumer kind of trend that we, we have now. So a lot of the, you know, the, the, the fair trade certifications and the uh, sustainable production certifications, these kind of things largely came out of that attempt to bridge that gap between how companies presented themselves and then how they managed themselves behind the scenes. And uh, we're seeing something of the same thing again, I think. And uh, except this time, you know, it, it's, uh, it, it's still, again, a set of very big companies, a, a set of companies who see themselves as very value-driven and <coughs> present themselves to us in terms of, of concrete values, you know, whether it's Facebook being open and connected or Google saying don't be evil, they have clear brand values. And, and we're again facing this challenge where there's a, a, a sort of a values gap between that presentation that they need and how they do their behind the scenes operation. But in this case, the behind the scenes operation that's taken the, the highlight is, the, is what's embedded in their software and what's embedded in their algorithms. And so, uh, while Kathy O'Neill's book might not be quite up there with Naomi Klein's yet, but uh, it's clearly one of those that helped help people start to, to think about this problem in a broader way. So, um, as we think about that, uh, the private sector has responded to this in a number of ways, and I'm just going to skim through this. So, so this is not really the the, the substance of my talk. So, I just, I just want to rush through this slide really to get onto something else, and. The, but they've done really two or three things, because I, I think especially the large platform companies are clearly in a place where since 2012, if you like, since deep learning kind of kicked off and the whole AlexNet thing you know, down, down the road here, um, they have made it central to their operation. Right? And they see this, that, that, that what they're, they're, they are down the road gonna be very AI-driven organizations. So they have to, get their head around this, and they have to, to find a way to, to own this stuff. So um, one of the things they've been doing is to assert themselves as responsible stewards of this powerful technology. And, and they've been doing that just through statements of principle and through industry bodies like Partnership on AI and through setting up advisory councils and those kind of things that you do when you're trying to, trying to be responsible. And then the second, but I, I'm not gonna talk about that at all. The second thing they've tried to do is they're saying, we can solve this by building our values into our software. And I know you had a presentation here 
a week or two ago from Michael Kearns, who's a, an academic, computer science academic. He's got a book coming out later on called The, the Ethical Algorithm. And I think I, I, I watched that, and he catches a lot of what they're trying to do. They've put some serious money into this project. Um, they're saying what we can, the, the real challenge here is to take notions of fairness, take notions of bias, and, and you know, make them operational by building them into our software, and that that's something that we can do. And so uh, these investments in this uh, fairness, accountability, and transparency in machine learning is how they've, they've taken on this um, thing. So um, this challenge. And I think we can see how that's going to evolve. We can see that there, there are outside efforts to, to call attention to this gap between how the private sector is behaving and how it would like to be perceived. Um, we can see that there are methods to, there are out sort of, in the same way that there were those, um, uh, you know, the fair trade badge, there are now audits and so on, some, one coming out of U of T, right, or, uh, and Joy Boyle and Weenie down at MIT, I think, and then some U of T con contribution to that called Gender Shades, which is trying to say, you know, we're going to look at your um, image recognition program and we're going we're to do some outside testing on it as well. So we can see there's going to be a back and forth between those. And obviously, there's some very important stuff going on there. Um, I'm sure others will talk about it, but it's, it's not what I'm going to talk about. What I want to talk about is um, some things that I think cannot be operationalized when it comes to bridging this gap. Um, and uh, the, the sociologists among you will be, will be um, very happy to, to, will be very familiar with the idea that a lot of the fairness work that's going on is deeply statistical, right? So the question really it asks is, there's a world out there, there's a data set that we have. Does that data set represent the world as we see it, or does it represent the world maybe as we would like to see it? Are we, and when we build that into our algorithms, are we doing so properly, right? Uh, so fairness has then become basically a statistical concept, uh, and it's a problem, if you like, of inaccuracy somehow. Uh, are, we, are we reflecting the world well? And, uh, but as, as, as you know, you know, algorithms, any kind of sorting system, or any kind of classifier, ends up also being an engine, right? Ends up also, uh, people respond to being sorted, um, and it, once you respond to being assorted, then the data set that it's having to work on is going to be different to the data set that it was trained on, and so that's going to bring in new problems. And it's a problem, if you like, of, to borrow a term from economics, elasticity. How much does our behavior change when you introduce this system? And I think that's going to be a big topic for because... Um, Commercial applications of deep learning at the moment are largely sort of done at the platform level. So it's now built into YouTube recommenders, it's built into to language translators and so on, but it's largely done, I think, by, 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 the, by the biggest of the platform companies. But what has come out through this, you know, about a year after the, the beginning of this was, was this kind of thing that you'll have seen. Adversarial examples were discovered, which means that these might be really accurate image recognition models, but if you tweak it in just the right way, they can also be very fragile, right? So uh, what you have here is this, 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 you'll have seen ones like this, where you have an image that looks, is classified but as a macaw. You do some subtle variations such that this image on the right looks, very, looks identical to us, but 
It's a bookcase according to the system. So there's, there's sort of a relationship somehow between accuracy here and fragility that I think is going, going to be important. And so I think what we have is that if you think of how you respond to being classified, how people respond to being classified, there, there's probably three things that affect how you're going to respond. One is, can you influence your outcome? So can you, can you make a change that is affordable in, in some kind of cost model? The second is, if you can make a change, will that affect the outcome? Um, so that's the sensitivity part of that. And then the third part is, if that change does affect the outcome, do you give a damn? Right? So some, some things you don't care about. But if you have all those three, then you're going to have a system that um, people are going to respond to very much and which is going to be, if you like, very elastic. And I think what we're seeing in the, some of the deep learning stuff is that they might have the accuracy, so some of the statistical stuff down, but what, and far from an expert on this, but you know, I think if you look at the literature, that there's, there's a fair amount of evidence that there are a lot of concerns that we're seeing a lot of problems with this elasticity. It comes partly from the, the, the middle one is the sensitivity, that's this adversarial examples one, Affordability, well, we've, we've heard increasingly about deep fakes like this and, and so on, the, the fact that it's easy to produce and experiment with, with alternatives in some environments, so affordable. And impact, because these things operate at scale, that's why they're there. So I think we're going to see a lot of problems around, uh, around, around elasticity. And I, these are phrased in the industry in typically in this kind of way. Uh, and, and let's think for a moment of, of um, Facebook and YouTube and, and those things for, for convenience. Um, they're phrased, we built this thing. It's a good thing. You can do a lot of good things with it. The trouble is there are some bad people out there. Right? There's some malicious actors. So uh, you might have seen just a couple of weeks ago, there was this stuff from this open AI company who had this speech generation tool that can produce in uh, strings of text that seem well-constructed, consistent, and, and have, a, have a, at least a, super, a, a, a pretty superficial, uh, well, a reasonable resemblance to human text. And they, they, they released this, but they said, we're concerned about it because we think there's lots of bad uses for this. Um, and they said, we, we have a, a commons out here that be, could be corrupted by this. So there's this big thing that's been built that's good, but it might be corrupted by malicious actors using this. And um, this tweet from this guy on the right who used to, used to be a, a senior person at Facebook and now is a journalist with Wired, he said, he, I think he voices some of, some of the feelings from the industry about these problems. It's like, hey, you know, we didn't really want this. We set up this up for, for nice people to use and now some people are using it badly. It's like, and, and, and you, on the one hand, you want us to control it, and on, we don't know what to do here. We're kind of frustrated with you folks for being unreasonable about, about your demands. So, so I think if we're going to work out, I, I think, just to go back. So I think mainly what I'm going to say is I think this is a, a, a terrible way of looking at things. So, uh, but in order to justify that, we have to take a little bit of a step back and think a little bit more about the incentives when we are classified and how we respond to that. And you can divide them up. Any, any kind of classification system generally has a narrow task and a broader task, right? So if it's, the, if it's the narrow task is defined 
in, in, the, in the model itself, and the broader task is, if you like, an intent. So if you think of standardized testing, the narrow task, of course, is you know, here's the test, you get evaluated on it, you get a score. The broader intent is this is meant to help you be better educated. The dangers of anything like that is you end up with you know, people gaming the system, if you like, teaching to the test, satisfying the narrow goal, but not satisfying the broad goal, right? So, so you, you can get your students through to get really good marks, but in such a way that they're not really well educated. But there's a spectrum of these, and um, I'm not gonna go through all of these, but uh, um, depending on what the costs are to change and how that goes, some systems are set up, from those of you from any kind of economics or, or game theory kind of background will know, signaling and screening is a case where the incentives are set up right, if you like. So the classic example is, you know, you want to get it, you, you're hiring people, you hire based on, say, university, uh, educational level. Um, educational level is lower cost to achieve for the kind of people you want to, you want to attract than it is for others. So at some level, there's a separating equilibrium where it will just sort itself out. You, set, you say, we'll hire people with degrees, you'll end up happy, right? The other area is more gaming, which is, again, people just respond, try to do the best they can. But if the costs aren't much, then, then, then we'll end up um, not satisfying the broader, the broader goal. So um, Lendo is a company that does alternative credit scoring with social media data uh, for micro loans in, in the developing world. And they build their credit scoring on the idea of your social network presence. But anyone can change their social network presence and your ability to change your social network presence is not linked to your creditworthiness. So this is a system that is going to get corrupted by itself naturally over time. But gaming, I think, so I think we're all familiar with the idea of gaming, but there are other kinds of reactions that we have to these. So one of them is, is workarounds. So this is a situation where you might behave in such a way that is against the rule, narrow rules of the game, but it is in favor of, if you like, the broader goal of the system. Right, so this is from a paper from uh, Jennifer Rasso, who's a legal scholar here in Canada about Ontario Works, which is the welfare program. They introduced this, and she did this in-depth study of, of how people use this system and the frontline workers who are entering data. And she said, um, what she found was that often they had to change the data that they entered in order to get the right result. And sometimes this was just bugs in the system and, and you know, it demanded an entry in a certain field that wasn't relevant, but they just had to put something in there. And sometimes it was a bit more subtle than that. But as one of the people said, the problem is that people's lives don't really fit into this, so we have to manipulate the system to make the decision that we want, right? And a lot of these algorithmic systems can really only exist if there's a certain amount of this going on. And anyone who's read, you know, James C. Scott's Seeing Like a State will know, you know, the big designs rely on, to some extent, people being able to get out and innovate around those. And then I'm actually going to have to skip over the performativity stuff, I think. So um, I will say a little bit, the final one, because um, I like this so much, is protests. So this is, this is where you're behaving in a way that does you, doesn't do you any harm on the narrow goal and also undermines the bigger goal. And you think, well, what, what kind of behavior might that be? So my favorite example of this is um, come from Yelp, where 
A couple of years ago, a small uh, Italian restaurant in San Francisco uh, called Bosso Bistro, I think, had set up, and it, it was an opinionated restaurant. I don't think it would make any arguments about that. And it had no great claims to customer service. And so it didn't do particularly well on Yelp, but they didn't really care. Eh, so what? They had a clientele who knew them and who liked them, right? But Yelp kept on coming after them saying, you know what? You should advertise with us. You should get a presence present on our platform matters. You know, so, so you might not have a good score, but hey, you, know, you should advertise with this. And they said, we don't, we don't want anything to do with you. Just go away. We, we want out of Yelp. They said, well, you can't be out of Yelp because free speech means anyone can talk about your restaurant, and that's what we do. So you can't opt out. And they said, all right, we want to be the worst rated restaurant in, in North America. So they incentivized, they said to people, you know, come in, buy this, write a one-star review, write something terrible about a restaurant, and we'll take a bit off your pizza, right? So we'll give you a discount pizza. And of course, so, so they succeeded in the way of driving down their rating until, of course, Yelp said, well, these are not valid, um, these are not valid reviews, so we're taking them out of the system. <coughs> it's like, well, and it raises all kinds of questions to me about what makes a valid review. Were they authentic? Well, they were certainly authentic in a sense, um, but they just weren't authentic in the way that Yelp wanted. So I think the point of this is, once we introduce these sorting systems, people will react. They will react in all kinds of ways. And they are, by and large, incentive incompatible systems. And what that means is that there's this notion around of algorithmic governance. But once you have an incentive incompatible system, then that, what that means is any algorithm worth its salt also needs another set of rules around it to keep it working. And those set of rules have to say, what kind of behavior is allowed when you interact with this algorithm, and what kind of behavior is not allowed? And that's not part of the algorithm itself, right? That has to be a separate set of rules. So to take one example, you had um, a little while ago, there was, uh, well, it continues to be a problem, uh, YouTube kids. Out of us. And some of you might have seen an article by uh, a guy called James Bridle. He had this long article about the, the long tail of weird and bizarre th videos that are shown on YouTube Kids. And so there was a certain amount of press uh, interest in that that took off from that. And, and uh, as a result, people started to look into what was going on there. And Johnny Tanner is someone who has a, a YouTube or had a profitable YouTube video stream putting out material for kids. And it was taken down by YouTube, or it told he couldn't make money from it because some of the material was not family friendly. They said, it's not appropriate, and that's it. His response was to say, number one, he couldn't get through to anyone and talk to them. But secondly, so he didn't know what it was that was wrong about what he said. So, you know, maybe there were some misjudgments, but he, he maintains, and I have no way of knowing one thing or another about this. The key thing, though, is this. He said, the thing is, the algorithm is the thing we had a relationship with since the beginning. That's what got us out there and popular. We learned to fuel it and do whatever it took to please the algorithm. So you have a recommendation system, YouTube's Up Next system, that promotes videos to people and based on, on watchability. Predicted watch time is the metric they use. That's the thing they optimize for, right? Um, and of course, and, and in some areas, predicted watch time's not bad. You know, music videos, fine. You know, I mean, if you watch it, it's probably all right. But when it comes to things like news and things like kids stuff, there are other considerations too. So then they have to say, 
all right, we have this other set of things over here we're going to call community standards, and we're going to slap you with that instead. So I think we have to ask here, this is not simply a matter of malicious actors putting stuff out on, on the platforms. What's happening here is you have an algorithm on the, one, on the left hand side that is promoting this kind of material, and then on the right hand side is slapping it down. And so um, the point here is I think a lot of the algorithmic governance systems do end up being incentive incompatible in this way, encouraging kinds of behavior that they then have to try to control. And that these two actions are really inseparable. The second thing to note about this is that rules don't usually scale as well as the algorithms themselves. So YouTube's recommendation algorithm, you know, just deals with content and stuff. It's a generic thing. You give it a video, it will give, tell you the things. But the, the cons monitoring the um, community guidelines, if you like, is a mess of endless special cases. And anyone of you who's read about sort of some of the moderation things and uh, the Facebook news, news, news feed attempts to moderate that will have seen that behind the scenes there's often what um, Astra Taylor calls photomation, uh, the use of people to mimic what is going on, uh, what seems like algorithmic to us, but is actually people behind the scenes doing it. And that's happening because those rules don't really scale as well. And I think we have to accept that there might be some highly elastic systems that are actually ungovernable. So, like, so the YouTube kids thing might, ju might just not be a controllable system that the flexibility that people have to produce new, new forms of content that might game the system make it just an unstable thing. So, so we have, so we have algorithms. Algorithms demand and create their own rules to help them, to help them stay, stay together. And this, in turn, creates temptations for the companies that offer them. So this is taking us back, if you like, to the beginning we were talking about that gap between the, the, the brand value, gap value expressed and then the way it operates expressed. And so here, what we're seeing is you've got the, a gap between the algorithms, incentives, and the additional rules incentives, if you like. And this, is a, this lets some of the companies play a certain regulatory arbitrage, if you like. They can move back and forth between which one of these they want to be accountable for. So I just want to take a few minutes to talk about that. So there's a way, so again, there's a financial incentive to be able to first own the problem um, in, this, in, in the same way that uh, uh, with going back to sort of the, uh, the, the Nike case, they say, we can deal with this, we can deal with this problem. But at the same time, to maintain something of that gap because financially there's a lot to be gained. So there are several ways that people, what have I got here? Oh, yes. Several ways that they can go about this. So one of these is to invoke to frame the problem in terms of the software process. I'm, I'm going to leave the first one aside, the unintended consequences one. Um, so Alex Rosenblatt is a, an ethnographer who recently wrote a, an excellent book about Uber called Uberland, where she rode around with their drivers. And, and just one case that they had, um, among the many that she documents, is uh, so drivers would have this thing where they would every now and then see phantom requests 
There would be a drive request that they would see, but by the time they turned to look at it, it had gone. Now, you might say, so what? But the thing is that often they are driving for extra credit based on accepting a certain percentage of rides. You know, if you accept 90% of the rides that you're asked to do, we'll give you this bonus. Um, and they're saying, well, we didn't get the bonus, but the reason we didn't get the bonus is because there were these little flips. All of a sudden, a request came and went, and we couldn't respond to it, and you've recorded this as a failure. And, uh, or as us rejecting, rejecting that ride request. And Uber's response to this is largely, well, hey, you know, maybe it's a network bug, maybe it's a problem in the system. We don't really know. Can you send us a reproducible case? No, you can't. So in the end, what you have to accept is that our systems will continue to improve, we're working on this, and it will be better in the future. But so, so what they're disallowing in the sense is any, we were talking about the various kinds of actions that people can take, that workaround action is saying that doesn't exist. You don't have the possibility of doing that. What you'll have to do is put up with what we've decided and it's gonna get better in the future. So that's one way of dealing with this, uh, is to, to invoke the software process and say this is our problem and we're working on it. Um, and obviously people outside the company don't have either the expertise or, the, or, or to, to, to deal with that. So it's a way of bringing it in-house and, and keeping your business model together. Second one is to invoke values ad hoc. This is the only part of this talk that I have any contribution to, really. So uh, one of the things I've done on the side is collect data about Airbnb listings in various cities. And uh, me and a friend released a report a couple of years ago about uh, Airbnb in New York City. And what they did was, I mean, you, you know some of the controversies around it, right? That it, they, they set it up, the, the, the consumer brand is hey, it's people occasionally renting out their own place. And the, the question is whether or not there's a lot of people running ghost hotels, running multiple places and so on. And the software itself lets you set up anything you want. So, so they say, here you are, go to town. Here's the software platform, work with it. And um, so people were doing that. And then, but at some point in New York, it was clear, became clear that this was not gonna, not gonna go that uh, they had to make the platform look better. So what they did, without telling people actually, was to kick a whole bunch of people who had more than one, uh, more than one listing off the platform. So what that means, I think, in a sense, is that you know, we've all heard code is law. Code is law up to a point. And then after that, code isn't law. Right? You can do what the code tells you, but at some point, the company can just say, you know what? You're not, delivering the you're not delivering the experience our community expects, and so we're gonna kick you off. So I think there are these temptations that it serves companies to keep this gap. Um, there are a couple of others that, that we can talk about, but I'm not going to. Uh, one is simply keep problems hidden, is, is an easy way around that. And then the final one would be, would be to use the data you've got as leverage to work with, with the legislators. Um, I'm actually going to keep this short and finish up so that we can get back on time and just say a few words about what we might do uh, to go beyond uh, how, how we might try to approach this problem. Because I, I think um, we have, when it comes to companies taking responsibility and for running large algorithmic systems, there's a path forward for bias, there's a path forward for the fairness concepts and the statistical concepts 
that they can be baked into algorithms. Not problem-free and not without a lot of work and not without valuable work being done by external critics calling out, calling out cases where it fails, but at least there's an approach there. But I think if we take the view that in the end what people are setting up is incentive incompatible systems that require extra rules that the platform companies themselves have no experience or necessarily authority to, to, to make, then we have to ask, how are we gonna keep those things together? How are we gonna get, build a system out of that? And so, so one way out of that you know, is to, to revisit section 230, the one that says basically platforms aren't responsible for what goes on on, on the, the externally, or, you know, from material that people provide onto the platforms. So Section 230 is American, uh, but my understanding is that in NAFTA 2.0, it kind of migrated over here as well. So I should, you're, but you're quite right, I should say Section 230 or its equivalents elsewhere. Um, and, um, uh, and ba but basically find one way to put it back on, on the platforms as, the, as their responsibility, not just in terms of brand image, but in terms of legal accountability as well. Um, a second approach for some systems um, might be to take what's happening in, in, in to, take, to take inspiration, if you like, from the, the judicial system. The more consequential a decision is, the more important it is to you and the more unavoidable it is then in general, the narrower the range of data that is permitted to be used in making that decision, right? So if you're doing a guilt or innocence, that is not a decision that can be made on a statistical basis. It's a decision made on a very narrow set of basis. If you're doing sentencing, that's broaded, made a little broader. If you're doing you know, um, parole decisions or so on, maybe it's made a little broader still. And that's where there's been a lot of debate recently about you know, some of the um, ProPublica stuff and algorithmic decision-making in, in parole hearings, but where the whole notion of whether statistical decision-making is the right way to go for those kind of decisions. So in general, the more important the decision, the more you want to narrow in the set of data that can be used to make it. And that, that, I think that's going to raise some severe questions around platforms that end up taking, taking really important decisions. Um, another approach might be to say, let's look at something like the, uh, and obviously I have no qualifications to any of these, I'm just rounding off a few, but uh, I, I'll do it anyway. So uh, competition is said, let look at some other industries have taken the approach of, of, of splitting things up, right? So if you look at, say, the airline industry, you have the infrastructure part of that, which is the airports, it's managed, it has a business model, and, and the airports are one thing. Airlines, they can come and go on top of that. You know, and they can buy stuff and lease stuff. And so there's a room for innovation in the airlines industry. Whether it works or not, you can decide. But there's room for innovation up there. But the infrastructure layer is pretty much pinned down. And you could say banking has done some of the same things. That the core functions of banking are very strongly regulated, maybe not as much as they should be, but again, there's a lot of regulation there around management of risk, around know your customers, around all these other things. A lot of those core things are, are, are strictly regulated, but now there's a move to open up on top of that a set of layers, a set of uh, you know, open banking initiatives for innovation at the customer service level, if you like. But what, 
those things don't do is let the same player be all of those things because that's, that's where you end up introducing some of these bad incentives, I think. And then finally, I do think it's just, just worth pointing out that of all the big sites that have had you know, all these controversies over the last little while, one that hasn't is Wikipedia. And I mean, it's certainly a surprise to me. I, I, I would have been one of those people who said 10 years, it's not gonna last, it's not gonna maintain its quality, it's gonna become victim to people fighting over things, people will get bored with it, all kinds. But nevertheless, I think, I think most people would agree it's, it's maintained its quality over the time in a remarkable kind of way. And part of that might be that it has, there is not the same kind of, um, it's not governed by a recommender system. It's not, it obviously doesn't have a commercial model for people taking part in the platform. It's dampened down a lot of those incentives uh, on the platform. So, so whether or not there's, there's room for a Wikipedia-based model for some of the other platforms, um, uh, well, maybe. So that's, that's, that's the talk. I think algorithms, they're, they're clearly getting more accurate. There's a lot of optimism around that. They're not getting more robust. Sorting is always going to create incentives. So they're going to require additional rules to manage people's behavior around them. And I think we have to ask more serious questions about those rules than we have done. Um, they become a form of governance. Um, and uh, whether we like it or not, um, and it gives the owners of those algorithms a temptation to engage in this regulatory arbitrage uh, to keep that practice, uh, that the gap between the brand and the practice fairly wide if they can, um, and that it's in our interest to help narrow it down. So um, that's what I have to say.